Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you found the place where we talk horses. He's been a professional horseman for over 50 years and a veterinarian in an exclusive equine practice for 37 of them. He has instructed at the UC Davis Medical Center, and just as important, he's a passionate advocate for the horse. He's also an avid trail rider. In his own words, he is a marginally talented cowboy poet and artist. He's a teacher of equine podiatry to vet students at the annual AAEP convention, and he says he's a sorry team roper. He brings practical knowledge, experience, and a little cowboy logic to just about any aspect of equine medicine, surgery, and dentistry. He was a guest last year, and I brought him back because one never passes up an opportunity for free vet advice. On the line from Capitan, New Mexico, Dr. Madison Siemens. Good morning, Dr. Siemens. How are you? Hey, John. Oh, better than I deserve. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, how's the weather over there in New Mexico? Oh, it was about 30 degrees when I got up at 5 this morning, but it's uh, it, it gets pretty nice here in the high mountains at this time of year, so we're getting the spring thaw and so the creeks are running it's just beautiful up here just beautiful but don't tell anybody because it's already crowded enough oh working a little bit we just got back on doing some horse camping at, in tombstone that was really interesting they've got that tourist trap kind of fixed up like an old western town and a lot of history there how long did you spend there we were just there for two days so it was a day of travel, two days of riding, and then a day back. And we spent half a day just cruising around the tourist trap. You could park near the town. You can actually ride your horses into Tombstone. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah. It's it's an interesting place. Again, a lot of history. We're just now fixing the load up. We're going to go over to northern Arizona, and then we're, from there we're going to go up to Bryce Canyon. We're going to spend a week riding Bryce Canyon. We're, oh, wow. we're having a dickens of a time finding now a lot of these national parks now are requiring that you have certified weed free hay before you can go in man we're having a dickens of a time finding it nobody in the state of new mexico grows it the ag department and the bureaucracy in charge of all that has made it so unbelievably difficult and expensive for these growers to, to buy the multicolored uh, hay string they're just not doing it hmm. so do pellets work at all it has to say certified weed free, and that I'm, I'm actually I'm on the interweb right now. There's all kinds of certified organic and this and that and whatever, but I have not found anything that yet. Says I'm I'm searching, I'm searching. There's a couple of growers in Colorado. We got to make a short trip, a short run up there here next week, and so if I can find some something within an hour or two where I'm going, I'll just buy it there because we got to go anyway. But dang, and they're and they're starting to check, and I got a bad feeling that the the price of locating some of that stuff is going to be a lot cheaper than the fines you got to pay if you don't have it. Right. Yeah. I've been seeing you've been riding quite a bit. I see you on Facebook all the time. Uh, this is such a great time of year. This is really a nice time of year. We're finally getting our horses out and getting on some trails and doing some riding and such. Great. Where you been? Well, we don't go very far. Well, Annette and I are getting to the age now where. If we don't get out and do it now, I mean, you know, I, I never know if I've got another day of riding or not. I and mean, I'm 71 years old, you know. Right. So yeah. so we're uh, we're just planning all the trips we can. We've got this 
this little end quarters trailer that makes it easy because I, I my, me sleeping up my sleeping on the ground days are gone. <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I like being able to crawl into that living quarters trailer on a soft mattress and cook a hot meal and even take a shower. This is this one's so dang fancy. I'm right there with you at this age. I don't want to end up on the ground in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> exactly. whether it's sleeping or or ending up there. Getting up from the ground is just way too much work now. Yep, I agree. It's so much farther away than when I was a younger man. I don't, I don't know how it changed that way. I think gravity has increased. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, man, I want to, I want to ride someplace where they've got geography. You know what I mean? I want. In September, we went up to Mount Rushmore, riding up to that monument. And not seeing a visitor center, not seeing tour buses and a bunch of asphalt. I mean, just riding up in the first vision that you get of that monument is framed in a set of pine trees. Oh, it, it don't get no better than that. It's, it's about a five-hour trail, about a five-hour loop to go up there on a horse. But, oh, wow. So that's what I'm looking for. And that's that's why we're we're gonna we're loading up here in another two weeks. We're going to Bryce. Oh, We've man. hiked that before, but we haven't ridden it before. But, uh, man. I'm just so looking forward to to seeing all that red sandstone formations, you know, framed in a set of horse ears. It just, yeah. it just don't get no better than that. Will you be able to go places that people on foot can't go? Actually, that's most of those trails are shared trails. They're shared, okay. We, we're pretty much going there. Most of where we go, it's no motorized vehicle, so that's pretty nice. Of course, I, our horses are pretty broke, so I mean, they've seen pretty much everything we, we're of an age now where we we got to ride broke horses and so the mare's 17 the gelding is he's got the mouth of a 15 or 18 year old horse so i don't know how old he is he's not told us and he's not he doesn't have registration papers i wanted to bring you back to talk horses are such complicated animals i, I wanted to bring our educational level up on how we can better treat our horses and learn about what they need for proper health. And I was wondering if you'd had any interesting cases that you might want to talk about today that you could share with our listeners. It's, it's funny you should bring that up. Okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> as a matter of fact, we had a very interesting case this year. It's uh, okay. actually this, this week. First off, you got to just back up a notch or two. There's an awful lot of information out there on the Internet, and some of it's really good, and some of it is worthless, and some of it's really bad. So best resource that you're going to have for, for medical issues with your horses is through your local veterinarian, a licensed equine practitioner. In some smaller communities, the guys and gals are doing everything that comes in the door, horse, cat, dog, cat, you know, boa constrictor. Your veterinarian is going to be your best resource because – what we do is try to sort out the good from the bad because there's so much, that information highway is just open things up. And it's been, overall, it's been a good thing. But some of these things that are on the interweb don't, uh, don't make a lot of sense. So your, your veterinarian is going to be your best resource. And some things haven't changed very much in the last 50 years, but some, some things change on a daily basis. So it's, it's, it's really hard to keep up. Are all veterinarians part of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, or is that uh, 
a more exclusive group. Oh, it's it's a very exclusive group. You got you got to have a license to practice veterinary medicine at three hundred dollars, and they'll let you in. <laughs> okay, but I mean, I think what I'm asking, Doctor Siemens, is if I call up a, a guy who says he's a horse vet, is he part of the AAEP? He or she should be, and there's actually there's more ladies in in our profession now than there is men. Mm-hmm. And I just ask them. You know, are you a AAP member? And and the directory, uh, org can get you to a AAP member in your area pretty quickly. You know, at this point, honestly, I, I don't think all equine practitioners are a member of our group, but they should be. There's The, the science changes every day. I mean, it is incredible uh, how much new information there is out there and, and how much of the old stuff that we've been doing forever Really not very good. Some some of the old stuff is great, tried and true, wonderful stuff. But some of the stuff that we were doing 20 years ago that would be considered the standard of practice 20 years ago would be considered malpractice now. Things that just aren't done because we know better. Okay, well, tell us about this fascinating case that you had last week. Boy, oh boy, well, it has a lot of edges to it. We'll just, I'll just give you the history, and you will fill in some of the details. So got called up about 10 o'clock one night. Gal, I had seen this gal's horse's a time or two, but I wouldn't call her a regular client. Generally, if somebody calls me about at 10 o'clock or midnight, they've called everybody else in the county, and either nobody wants to answer the phone or go over there. But, but I, I like emergency work. I really do. It's always interesting. And most of the time, with one notable exception, people are glad to see you, and they're happy that you came regardless of the outcome. So Janie calls me up. That's not her name. But Janie calls me up, says she says she just brought a horse in here from Oklahoma. And he was fine when uh, she put him on the trailer, and now he's stumbling around. So she rescued him from a rescue operation in Oklahoma, which was uh, 10 or 12 hours from here. Okay. So he's stumbling around and just acting drunk, and, and it's just a mess. And he's, she said he's an older horse, and he's, you know, he needs to gain some weight. But overall, you know, she just felt sorry for the horse. By the time I get there, it's about 11 o'clock, because it, it was pretty good ways from my house. And I mean, this poor horse. This was horse hide stretched over some horse bones. Should have never been put on a trailer to be, to been hauled more than 20 minutes to go to a vet hospital someplace. So, but, you know, he was hauled all the way out here from Oklahoma. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that, yes, he was big time neurologic. And so anything that's making a horse stumble around or unable to get up, I mean, can't rule out some type of neurologic problem just by looking at them in most instances. There's certain things that certain diseases will have, will be more prevalent with, like the West Nile, the horses will tremble a lot, like they're trying to shake a fly off. Encephalomyelitis, the EET or the EWT, head mm-hmm. pressing is really common. They'll put their head on a fence post or a stall wall and press. The herpes myelitis or the EHM, a lot of those horses will sit down like a dog. But, mm-hmm. but again, without without doing some testing, you cannot make this diagnosis. So here we got a course that's clearly neurologic. Of course, first thing I do when I talk to a horse is that I put my fingers in his mouth, rub on his gums a little bit, see what his color is, listen to his heart, take his temperature. But when the horse is stumbling around like that, it gets uh, just a little risky. <laughs> this horse couldn't stand up. It was sad. It was just awful. But I got him checked out pretty good. And so Janie wants me to uh, put a catheter in him and run intravenous fluids to him. I said, Jamie, 
that would be very, very dangerous. And she was thinking it would be like on the television shows. I can just throw a catheter at him, run some fluids, you know, for until the next commercial, and we're laughing, you know. But right. reestablishing hydration in a horse, it takes you two or three hours. You're not going to just hang a liter of fluids and we're done. Typically, this is this is going to be in that 10 to 20 liters range to get him really, really hydrated. So when I tried explaining that to her, she got pretty unhappy about that because she really wanted me to treat this horse. And I said, Janie, I'm really sorry. I just We just can't do that. It is too dangerous. I didn't even hard to get that out of my mouth. And he staggered over there, fell into the wall, fell over cold hammer dead, just deader than a hammer. So... You know, it's just kind of like, dang, now what are we going to do? It was an interesting relationship, her and her husband. They they turned into just short of coming to blows. Because he's screaming at her, she shouldn't have brought this horse home. And she's screaming back that, you know, why didn't we care about trying to save this poor horse? And, I mean, it just got ugly quick. Uh-huh. So I said, well, just, well, I said, so who who signed off on the Coggins and the health cert? Uh, we, we didn't get a health certificate. Uh, it was just this rescue thing. And he was fine when we put him on the trailer. Well, Here's the problem. You cannot transport a horse in this in this United States across straight lines without at least a Coggins test within the recent few days or sometimes up to a year or in a, in a health cert within the recent 30 days. You cannot transport that horse across the state lines legally. A lot of people do it. It's kind of like a driver's license. You only need one if you get stopped. Right. But where we will go later in this discussion is exactly why you need this. I mean, it's just ugly. So fine, she just throws up her hand, screams at us, cusses at us, and walks out, walks out of the barn. So now it's me and the husband, and cooler heads are starting to prevail. And so I'm starting to tell him about the two things that we got to worry about on this horse are that it's called equine herpes myelitis or EHM or yeah. rabies, because you can't just look at a horse and say this neurologic case doesn't have EHM or rabies. And EHM is pretty contagious. It's a reportable disease. The mortality of that, no matter how many horses die from that, is not very much. But it is pretty contagious, and it really puts the fear of God into people. And uh, we had an outbreak in 2011 over in Utah. Yeah, they quarantined half of California and most of Utah because right, I remember of that. that. Yeah. Oh, it is ugly. So you've got a um, dead horse now, and so what do you do next? Well, and that's, that's where it gets really interesting, because it's not like we can just, you know, pull some hair, take some blood and test this horse for rabies, but you cannot rule this out. The problem is that rabies is 100% preventable and it's 100% fatal, and it's a weird disease. There have been two cases documented of humans getting rabies after corneal transplants in their eyes. Wow. Now, think about that. Well, what happened was they were in a bat cave or something, and some rabies virus got aerosolized in the urine of a rabid bat, and it got stuck in their cornea, and they died and donated their eyes to science, and somebody was just unlucky enough to get that particular cornea. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a, it's a weird situation, you know what I mean? Right. But, I mean, it, there's two cases of that. So you can't just look at it and, ha- and t- take this cavalier attitude and say, well, it's probably not rabies. There was a case of equine rabies in this county about 20 years ago. So it does happen. It's exceedingly rare. But the way you test for that is called a necropsy, which is an animal version of an autopsy. you got to cut his brain out, and they test it for something called negri bodies inside of his cerebellum. Very, very easy to do in a, in a laboratory setting, but it has to be done. And if it's not, then me and everybody that's been exposed to this horse has to take the post-exposure inoculations, which are not cheap. 
and nobody likes likes to get a needle stuck in their arm. That was the problem. And so I told the husband, you know, we got to get this horse up to the diagnostic lab in Albuquerque. And all that did not make him happy. So I explained to him the reasoning, and we needed to test him for the EHM because it's contagious. There were other horses on the trailer that they brought from Oklahoma. He has other horses on his property. It now it becomes it becomes a real problem. Right. And he told me he he do what he could, and so he told me to go. I get back home, go to bed, call the next morning, try to find out when they were planning on moving this horse because I want to get him tested for rabies. I've got little cuts on my hands and I had my fingers in his mouth. Let me stop you there. So when I worked at a small animal practice as a animal health technician, we were able to sever the head and then yeah. and then take the just the head yeah. to the lab instead of the... Yeah. I remember one time we had a St. Bernard and, you know, that thing was 250 pounds. Wrestling that guy around was a chore. I can't imagine a thousand pound horse, even a skinny thousand pound horse. Could you do that or or would that? Yeah. Yeah. So I just, yeah, if you got to just take the head, go ahead and do that. That's fine. And so he said he's a hunter. So he had no problem with taking the horse's head off. Okay. so. So, so I call him the next morning and it just goes to voicemail. Boy, I need to talk to you. Wait an hour. Call him the next morning. Goes voicemail. So okay, now we're gonna do. So call the state veterinarian and said, "Look, here's what we got." And he goes, "Oh man, I gotta have that head, and I gotta have a nasal swab and some blood." Well, I pull some blood and a nasal swab just immediately after the horse died. Left it up to the owner to take the head up there. So I told him that's what we had. So it's expensive to send this stuff on ice next day air because it has to be there fresh. So I did that anyway. So now it's it's Thursday now. And it did get there the next day, but I'm I'm calling down there to see if they've taken the horse to Albuquerque yet, and all it does is go to voicemail. So rain on this noise, so I drove all the way back down there again, 30 minutes one way, left a note on their stall door. Thank God the horse was still there. Said you need to call the state veterinarian. You need to get this horse to Albuquerque. A local veterinarian called me, who also happens to be the president of the board of veterinary medical examiners. She said, I heard you had an arrow case. I said, yeah. She said, she said it belonged to Janie, not her name. I said, yes. She goes, oh, man, this is going to be a wreck. Janie knows that you're not supposed to transport horses across state lines without a health search. So still, horse hasn't been tested yet. And so I'm still wondering, do I need to take the post-exposure? Sure enough, they finally they did get that horse's head up there to Albuquerque, and they tested it right away. And praise God, he was negative for the rabies. And he was negative for the herpes myelitis, which is really, really good. But the health certificate is not a guarantee that the horse is healthy. It's a paper trail. And so if you've got a reportable disease like rabies or like EHM and you wind up with it in in your county, it came from somewhere. The reason that we were able to arrest that EHM outbreak in, in Utah back in 2011, it was we had that paper trail and we knew where the sentinel animal was. That was that one that had it first, came from Orange County, California. So we knew how to go about quarantining and testing. And what could have turned into a major wreck, you know, was relatively confined to a couple of small areas. And that's the reason for the health certificate. It's a great story, Dr. Siemens, but I'm going to play the ignorant person's advocate here for just a minute, or if I could. Had that person had that health certificate and Coggins test, would that have changed the situation? Oh, yeah. In what way? 
anywhere between $2,000 and $100,000 worth of fines. Wow. And where would the, what would those fines have been for? For transporting a horse across the state lines without, without documentation. And it doesn't yeah. matter if he's sick or not. It doesn't matter. And so in New Mexico, it's $500 per incident. I'm not clear on how many animals were on that trailer, but I think it was four. I think there was two horses and two cows. But again, she kind of played fast and loose with the truth anyway. So I, I don't know. I don't know. In California, it's $25,000 per incident. Oh so if you've, got, if you've got four horses on that trailer and you don't have a, a current uh, Coggins and Hell cert, that's a hundred grand wow. and up to, up to five years in jail. Okay. Now another ignorant question here. Does the Coggins test, does it test for a disease called Coggins or does it test for other things and it's just the name of the guy who developed the test? It's, yeah, it belongs to the name that the other guy that developed the test. He was a, not only a brilliant diagnostician, but he was also a brilliant money manager. And then what does it test for? Equine infectious anemia. It's a retrovirus like AIDS in people. It was really prevalent in the South. They used to call it swamp fever. It's a disease that's where there's lots of mosquitoes and body flies, you've got equine infectious anemia. It was rampant in the South for as long as there's been horses here. Anywhere where it's warm and it's, it's wet, like the whole Gulf Coast, you have a potential problem with EIA. Dr. Coggins in late 60s, early 70s actually came up with a test that would determine whether or not the horse had been exposed. Right, right. Not necessarily carrying the virus, but he's been exposed. But that was the state of the art of technology at the time. Test for the disease was invented by Leroy Coggins DVM, and it okay. tests for exposure. And what they would, what they did was they test and slaughter. If you were a reactor, you got put in the ground. By doing that 50 years ago, we have dramatically changed the level of incidence. We still have some outbreaks here, but not okay. nearly like they, like we had 50 years ago. I, I want to go back to Janie's horse case, the horse that died. Had she gotten a health certificate? and a Coggins test, and then transported the horse across state lines, and you saw it, how would that change the outcome, or would it? The only thing that would have changed was now we've got a paper trail. Now she's not subject to any kind of fines or legal ramifications because she did what she was supposed to do. Okay. The health cert is not a guarantee of the horse's health. What it is is it's a guarantee that when this horse was examined, and that's the reason why, so we write a health cert, the Coggins is good for either six months or 12 months, depending on what state, but the, but the health cert has to be written no later than about, so as a general rule, five or six days before the horse is shipped, because a lot of things can happen. So we can't, the, the health cert is good for 30 days, but technically we ought to be writing the health cert within a few days of the horse being transported, because he, he can go from healthy to being sick in a week, you know what I mean? Right. But as long as long as we're doing what we're supposed to do and we're and we're establishing that paper trail, then there's no legal ramifications. But the challenge with this horse, because he was so debilitated, was that nobody would have signed off on a health certificate to transport this horse. Right. That's where it would have changed right there. That horse would have never gotten on that, that trailer. Never would, have, never would have gotten on the trailer. We use a body score system, and so one is barely alive, and nine is morbidly obese to the point of being barely alive. 
And so the optimum weight would be a four and a half, okay? By law, by federal law, no horse with a body score of two or less can get on a van and leave the state. And technically, they shouldn't even be able to get on the van and go any further than it takes them to get to a veterinary hospital. So that's right. that. That's the law. That's those are the guidelines. You know, she's pretty upset about this whole situation now because it has cost her some money to go to Albuquerque, and now she's looking at some significant fines. It's it's only five hundred dollars per incident here, but if there were four animals on the trailer, that's two grand. It's, yeah. it's a misdemeanor. It's not a felony, but still, dang. I mean, that's not coffee money, you know. Right. If she goes across from Oklahoma to whatever state's next between you, does it for each state? Because <laughs> well, she went it, through it, a couple of states, right? It, yeah, it could be. It could be. But she, she got lucky. She didn't get stopped going through Texas. Okay. That's the problem. And, and, you know, she's pretty mad at me about the whole situation. I mean, everything just got uglier from the point. And, you know, well, what killed the horse? Well, she... She didn't want to spend money on an entire, you know, autopsy to find out exactly what killed the horse. But in reality, and I did, I did not tell her this. I don't want to be mean, but in reality, she killed him. Yeah. She never, never should have put him on a trailer and hauled him ten or twelve hours. Right. That was the saddest part of the whole thing, you know. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be those people that make a mistake and blame somebody else for it. Sure. You know, we're we're in springtime now. It's May. What are some things, let me put it this way, what are some of the things that people really try to kind of cheap out uh, medically with their horse that ends up costing them more in the long run? Great question. I'm a minimalist when it comes to vaccinations. I could spend a ton of your money vaccinating your horse right now. There are vaccines that work. There are vaccines that, are, that have no effect, and there are vaccines that are harmful. It's a good idea to have to be in contact with your with your local equine veterinarian, and there there are two reasons for this. The first reason is that we are kept current on the what we think now is the should be the state of the art in preventive medicine, and so I vaccinate horses because I want to be able to help to protect them, but I also want to be able to look at them every year, and so I will I'll just give them a, just a just a once over, and I can look at a horse and. 20 seconds and tell you if he's relatively healthy or not. I'll include a, a brief dental exam. Uh, we'll talk about any kind of little lumps or bumps or nutrition or parasite control. I mean, there's a ton of stuff we can do that doesn't cost the client a lot of money. And right. so and so we can tell them what vaccines to give, and I can give them properly. And then the second thing is, is if, if we get a vaccine reaction, we get an abnormal reaction, a painful reaction, some of these, the horses will colic a little bit. You know, there'll be pain at the, at the side of the injection, swelling. Some horses get really lethargic after that. The vaccine companies will pay for any kind of treatment or testing that we have to do on the horse. If you go down to the feed store and buy those vaccines and give them yourself, you are on your own, and it doesn't matter what happens. Hmm. So it's a, it's a good idea to have your licensed local equine veterinarian do this for you because you are, you are covered in so many ways. So we're giving them the right vaccines at the right time and in the right place, and we are covered in case we have any adverse reactions. We have three horses, Dr. Siemens, and one of them, my mare, she's allergic to just about everything. We would give her a vaccine, the combination EWE, West Nile, I, I forget all the acronyms, but it was a three-way. Yeah. And, you know, each year she would just 
she would get a, a more severe reaction. So we would do them individually. Well, the reactions, I've had her for 15 years. So the reactions just kept getting worse and worse. And finally, after one shot, I went out the next morning and she was just shivering on the ground. She was on her side. And she recovered from that within another 24 hours or so. But I've just stopped giving her vaccines because they're just reactions to every one of them that we tried. With my wife's horse, he's also an older horse. He can take the the three-way without any problem. And then we have another horse that's a Mustang that he's okay with one, but the other one, we don't give it to him. So you really, you have to kind of be aware when you're giving these vaccines too, and which ones are going to be the greatest danger to your horse too, right? Well, exactly. And this this is where some of the current research is really coming into into play here. Years ago, what we do, we take these horses that were bad reactors to vaccines and we pre-treat them with anti-inflammatories or either steroidal or non-steroidal. Sometimes that helped kind of dampen down the reaction a little bit. But then current research over the last five or six years have shown that if you pre-treat them with either butamine or dexamethasone, which is a powerful steroid anti-inflammatory, that you will control some of the inflammatory response, but the other thing that you control is the yes. immune response. Right. So, so they're they're not getting any benefit from the shot. So, That's what's right. the point? You know, <laughs> there's a couple of guys uh, at UC Davis that have mentored me for years. It's, uh, Dave Wilson and Nick Pasterla. Those guys have done more about equine vaccines than anybody on the planet. And in some personal communications with Dr. Pasterla, he's told me. On a couple of occasions, it's not, it's been within the recent 10 or 12 years, is that immunologically, these horses are telling you they don't need another vaccine. So like on a foal, so foal six months old, we're going to start him out with his baby shots. So we'll give him a round of something today. Basically, it's that EWT tetanus and rabies. That's, that's what we do. And then we'll come back in two or three weeks and give them a boosting dose. It's the same drug. It's the same dose. It's the same everything. But it's just that different timing and that we think think that that boosts their immunity. Depending upon how the horse responds to the vaccine, that's how we judge whether or not we need to come back in there and hit him again. And so what we've been doing for the longest time is doing annual boosters, typically for everything. We know now that horses that have these adverse reactions – their immune system is telling us, I don't need any more of this stuff. And like on your, on your horse, it's worse every year, like people that are allergic to a bee sting. What I do with patients that do this is that I will not vaccinate those horses again for three years. And the beauty is that because of that immune response, they're telling you, their body is telling you, I got this covered. Right. You don't need to vaccinate them again because their immunity is already way up there where it ought to be so that when they see the wild strain of the virus, their body can respond to it. So, man, it's a win-win for everybody. Like I mentioned earlier, I worked for uh, small animal veterinarians when I was younger, and we would vaccinate a dog for rabies every three years. We would, you know, do distemper when they were puppy, we'd give them a series, and then we... Some dogs never saw another distemper shot ever again, and they were still had the immunity for distemper. And when I when I started getting into horses, I asked my vet, 
why do we have to reboost these horses? Are, are we over vaccinating them? And at the time, again, it was 20 years ago, she said, oh, no, horses have a different immune system. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is it, Do the viruses change? Do they mutate like they talk about COVID? Or yeah. are, are we just over vaccinating horses? We're, we're over vaccinating horses. Part of that, because there are so many unvaccinated horses out there, too, is that a disease can spread so quickly. You know, an unvaccinated horse goes to a horse show and if it shows signs of illness, then, like you said a couple of years ago, they shut down all the California horse shows for three months until the disease had passed. This is almost apples and oranges in a way, because when we talk about this herpes myelitis, which is the reason they shut everything down in 2011, okay, that's also called rhinopneumonitis. And there's seven flavors of that particular herpes virus, seven, at least that I know of. There's probably more now because there's people working on them all the time. And they cause anything from respiratory crud to abortion to that neurologic thing that everybody gets to worry about. There's several vaccines out there for that, and every one of them is worthless. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a herpes virus, okay? Think about it for a second, okay? If it was that easy to vaccinate against a herpes virus... I don't even have to go there, do I? Right. <laughs> yes. It lives. It's a. It's a weird bug. It actually lives in your spine in, in the spinal cord. We can pull antibodies on a lot of these horses for equine herpes, and they'll have no antibodies whatsoever. But if they get stressed, boom! Yeah. Now you got it. So yeah. it lives. It's called. It's called recrudescence. It lives in the spinal cord where you can't test for it, and then in, in stressful situations, it will emerge. It's like it is in people. You get those cold sores in your mouth. That's in your spinal cord back there below your brain. And when you get stressed, you bite your lip, whatever, you get a cold sore. Right. So that's the way all herpes virus actually is called. It's called recrudescence. Kind of got out in the weeds there. Yeah, we, yeah, we did, but that's okay. It's really been interesting talking to you and, and hearing the stories. I, I think it's important to stay on top of your horse's health, not only with feed and worming, but and vaccination schedules. I think dental is very important and oftentimes neglected. We don't peek into a horse's mouth very often. I think those are all important things. And I'm glad that we got to talk a little bit about that today. But I also, on a on a lighter note, Summer's coming up and people need some light summer reading. And your book, Never Trust a Sneaky Pony, is a, just a fun, quick little read. You get it at horseandriderbooks.com, Trafalgar Publications, horseandriderbooks.com. And it's also on Audible. So I got to record the, and perform the audio version of it, and that was a hoot. Very cool. So it's available. When it first came out, it was number one on Amazon for humor, believe it or not. was didn't try to make it funny, but it just worked out that way because you can't make this stuff up. But it's out on Audible, so you can get it anywhere you get your audio books. And it was the number one selling horse book in Canada right now. Trafalgar Horse and Rider Books has distribution centers in Europe and Australia. So if you buy it through horseandriderbooks.com, you don't have to pay for shipping. Oh, very, very cool. About a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, I just signed a contract with a screenwriter, and they're going to make it into a movie. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> Are you headed to Hollywood now? No, I, well, I, I told him, I said, I want, I want to, I, I've only do this under one condition. I want to be a really cranky, totally obnoxious old client because I know how to be that. And so she said she'd allow, she'd figure out a way to put me into the script someplace. <laughs> I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say something like, uh, "I want just make sure Brad Pitt plays my my role." I can't tell you who it is right now, but they're gonna pitch it to somebody that you would recognize. Well, it sounds great. Well, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. Very fun. The only thing that I'm starting, other thing I'm starting to offer right now is I'm doing some online consultations. So go to cornerstoneequine.com. CornerstoneEquine.com, one E between Cornerstone and Equine. Just follow the link. You can find out where uh, you can get some information on some online consultation. Uh, if you have a question or a problem or just want to run the situation by somebody else, do a fair amount of that nowadays. So I'm available for those types of things as well. Sounds perfect. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And have a great summer, and I'm sure we'll talk to you in the fall. That'll be great. Give me a holler. I'll just give you some more. Uh, you can't make this stuff up on our, our trips and adventures through. Uh, we're, we're doing Bryce Canyon here next oh, a couple of weeks, and then we're doing. We're going to go down to Big Bend in the fall. You ever been down there? No, I haven't. Oh, where is, is that? Phenomenal. They call it Big Bend because the Rio Grande takes a great big bend in oh. West Texas as as it goes up towards El Paso, and then it, most of Rio. Uh, big chunk of the Rio Grande is actually in New Mexico. You ever been to Yosemite and seen the El Capitan and half? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. There's a cliff at, uh, at Big Bend that's as tall as Half Dome. Oh, wow. And they got peregrine falcons down there and several hundred miles of horse trails. I mean, it's, it's a really neat place, but you don't, not a place to go in the summer. <laughs> you go in, the, go in the fall as the weather gets cooler and it's really neat. Sounds awesome. It's really nice. You got any? You got any fun plans for the summer? My wife's doing some traveling. She's going to the Calgary Stampede. I'll be staying All home, right. taking care of the animals, and uh, we've got a fun trip to Nashville planned in the fall. We're looking forward to it. That'll be great. Yeah, the Double AP was in Nashville not last year, but year before last, and. That's, that's a fun little town, let me tell you. That is one heck of a town. I fell in love with it. We went there once before, and I just, man, this is, I can see why people are moving to Tennessee. Yep, yep, yep. It was pretty cool. Hey, listen, I really appreciate you including me as part of your team here, John. Thank you so much. And for forgive me when I run away with the <laughs> content sometimes. I just, sometimes I just get passionate and Yes. I just kind of run with it, you know. You can you can tell you're excited about your work, and I just I love that about you, Doctor Siemens. I just love that about you. Well, thank you so much. That will do it for this episode. Thanks to Doctor Madison Siemens for sharing his time and experience with us. Look for his book, Never Trust a Sneaky Pony, available in print from Horse and Rider Books and on Audible. You can also check it out on his website. I'll have all the links at wopodcast.com. I hope to have Dr. Siemens on more often. If you have a question, please send it along and we'll get you his answer. As always, if you'd like to share a story or experience about your horse or suggest a guest, let's hear it. Send an email to john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name wopodcast. It's always great hearing from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. 
Until next time, for Renee, this is John Harris saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.